Welcome back to Full Time with Meg Linehan. I'm Meg. You are listening to a show all about women's soccer on the Athletic Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by Direct TV Stream. Get your TV together with the best of live and on demand. Learn more at directtv.com. Okay, hopefully it was a bit understandable that we skipped last week's show. It's been a ride here as the fallout continues across the NWSL. Obviously, you have heard and seen a lot from me over the past week or two, but Steph Young, my coworker and fellow women's soccer writer at The Athletic, joins the show this week as we catch up on all of that fallout, plus actually discuss some soccer. What a concept. And we'll also react to Wednesday's U.S. Women's National Team roster drop. But before we get to the rest of today's episode, as always, to show your support of full-time, plus get all of our women's soccer coverage and everything else The Athletic has to offer on our site and app. You can subscribe right now. There's always an offer at theathletic.com slash full-time, and it's always one of our best deals. On to the news. Now, obviously, it has been basically nonstop over the past couple of weeks, but here is an attempt at capturing the headlines that you need to know. Let's start, of course, with the NWSL. On Wednesday, first reported here at The Athletic in the morning, the League and Players Association released a joint statement with a couple of key updates. The first is that at the request of the players, the NWSL championship match is being moved. Rather than being played at Providence Park on November 20th, it will now be at Lynn Family Stadium, home of Racing Louisville FC. And while the CBS time slot hasn't changed, that means a noon local kickoff for players, plus grass. While the players haven't been shy about complaining about the the choice at the start of September, there had been some factors at play, namely that Portland was the only team to complete the bidding process for the championship. But on Wednesday, here is what the Players Association and the league said. Quote, At the request of the players, the NWSL has moved the NWSL championship from Portland to Louisville. We realize the impact that this has on fans who bought tickets and made travel arrangements. We hope that our fans will understand that this move is made with the support of the NWSL, the Players Association, the Portland Thorns, and Racing Louisville. Portland understood the importance of listening to the players, and Louisville stepped up to host. Players embraced the opportunity to kick off at noon local time in another fantastic venue. We sincerely hope that fans will consider making this move east with us or that you watch this historic game on CBS. The two sides also announced that while there has been progress on a list of demands issued last week by the Players Association, some more time is needed and everyone agreed to a five-day extension in good faith, so stay tuned there. Also, the Black Women's Players Collective have launched their new website at bwplayercollective.org. That link will be in our show notes, plus their partnership with Adidas also announced, the group's board is seven players. It includes 37 players as members. And the website also includes a list of player advocates. For more information, you can visit their site and you can donate directly to the BWPC as well. On the ongoing Washington Spirit story. Now, at the time of this recording, which is Wednesday afternoon, we are still waiting to see the verdict coming out of the deadline set by the NWSL for the club to respond to their violation of notice concerning the league's investigation. Players have made their desires publicly known for Steve Baldwin to divest and sell to another owner, Michelle Kang. We have a number of stories on this front at The Athletic, including the findings of that investigation, the latest on a potential sale process, and that includes a huge amount of financial information that's all at The Athletic. Again, there will be a link to the Washington Spirit page directly on our website in the show notes. 
There's also a lot more news from the past two weeks directly related to the fallout from our story on September 30th. North Carolina Courage fired Paul Riley. The NWCL accepted Commissioner Lisa Baird's resignation. General Counsel Lisa Levine was also ousted. The league has announced a new executive committee to oversee front office operations. Thorne suspended General Manager Gavin Wilkinson from his Thorne's responsibilities only while an investigation takes place, plus all of the work from the NWSL Players Association and protests from the return to play. Rather than trying to dig into this all in a news section, please visit our, our running live blog where we have captured all of this, plus a whole bunch of game reaction from the past week. There's a link in the show notes. It's free to read. And at this point, I, I consider it a historical document. Um, it's far more comprehensive than what I could manage here unless I basically wanted to take up the entire show. Okay, outside of the NWSL, the USL announced that they have hired Amanda Vandervoort as the first president of the new Super League slated to kick off in 2023. It will be a professional second division league. And if you've seen a lot of people buzzing about this hire on social, there's a reason for that. Amanda's been around the game in a number of roles from MLS to FIFA Pro, and she had a huge role with United Soccer Coaches as well. As I said on Twitter, it's a statement higher, and I definitely look forward to seeing the plans and hopefully having Amanda on the show once she's actually had some time to settle in. The U.S. Women's National Team roster is in for the two friendlies against Korea. Some notable things from the list and the press release. Emily Fox is in. Megan Rapino returns. Alyssa Nair, Sam Mewis, and Julie Ertz are still back on the roster, but they are in camp to check in on their injury rehab. And both Kristen Press and Crystal Dunn opted out of these two matches. Here's the full roster. So for goalkeepers, we've got Jane Campbell from Houston Dash and Adriana Franch from Kansas City. For defenders, Abby Dahlkemper, Houston, Tierna Davidson, Chicago, Emily Fox, Louisville, Casey Kruger, Chicago, Kelly O'Hara, Washington Spirit, Becky Sauerbrunn, Portland, Emily Sonnet, Washington. For midfielders, there are five. We've got Lindsey Horan out of Portland. Rose Lavelle from OL Reign, Katerina Macario over in France with Lyon, Chrissy Mewis in Houston, and Andy Sullivan from Washington. Seven forwards, Tobin Heath, now listed with Arsenal, of course. Carly Lloyd, we'll be talking a lot about her over the next couple of weeks, from Gotham. Alex Morgan out of Orlando, Mal Pugh from Chicago, Megan Rapino, OL Reign, Sophia Smith, Portland, and Lynn Williams from North Carolina. First of these two games is Thursday, October 21st at Children's Mercy Park in Kansas City. It's at 8 p.m. Eastern on ESPN2 and TUDN. Then round two is in St. Paul, Minnesota at Alliance Field on Tuesday, October 26th. That game is at 8 p.m. Eastern as well, but there will be a pregame show on FS1 starting at 7.30. TUDN will pick it up at 8. Okay, it's been a couple weeks since Steph has been on the show. We obviously have... A ton to talk about, so let's get it going. All right, Steph, it's been a couple weeks since you have been on the show. Um, some things happen, just a, just a few things, and I, I guess we should just start with, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and the big news from today is that the championship was moved, so we might as well start there and then almost kind of work our way backwards with a nice detour through maybe actually talking about some soccer that's still being played. Right. I want to um, set the table that Meg introed this while she was rubbing like her forehead <laughs> in circles, trying to just get her brain to 
accept all the information. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I joked about this on Twitter today, but, like, I feel like every single day over the past two weeks, I have woken up thinking my day is going to go in one direction, and, and by 9 a.m., at best, it is, it's gone. Like, uh, any plan beyond, oh, I have to do a media hit and thus cannot change the time of this, it's gone. Stop having expectations. That's why you suffer. <laughs> okay, so our the the NWSL championship game has been moved from Portland to Louisville, same time, different time zone. So already a win. Also, the play the players will now be actually playing on grass. Also a win. Um, brand new facility, obviously. Uh, I guess you know. I think the question that kind of everyone is asking is like, okay, well, why did this happen on October 13th and not when it was originally announced? But I feel like the answer to this is pretty clear, and that's the players have a lot more power now. Yes. I mean, Portland released their own statement today that felt a little salty, where they were like, at that time, we were the only ones who bid. Um, and I, Which think, is true. Yeah, and Which that's been public knowledge for a while. And so... I think that's that's your answer right there. They were the only ones who bid at that time, and the players didn't really have a seat at the table, so they were reacting to this the same as everybody else. We've heard it a lot where the players are like, we're tired of finding things out on social media. Like, Aubrey Bledsoe flat out said it at the last Washington Spirit post game. Like, maybe their, their situation is a little more <laughs> direct there, but yeah. Um, I don't think it's a big mystery. I think it sucks. Multiple people have been like, I already made plans the way travel is. They've already got tickets and Airbnbs or hotels and, you know. But um, in in the end, it's what's best for the players. So, you know, it does suck that some of this cost is going to fall on people canceling their plans. It's just, I think, would you rather have the players playing grumpily at 9 a.m. or more healthily and happily at the later kick? Yeah, I definitely think, obviously, timing-wise, you know, at, at this point, though, it's kind of there are some things, I think, coming out of the past couple of weeks where it's just like you can't really avoid it. And this was obviously a thing, you know, players weren't shy, even at the start of September, about their reaction to the championship being played at 9 a.m. And if you were going to play the game of, um, you know, unstoppable force meets immovable objects, the immovable object in this case was the CBS <laughs> broadcast spot. And so the unstoppable force in this case that was stoppable is the fact that Louisville came back and said, hey, we can host. So there are solutions, but I do think this also points to the fact that stuff that we thought was kind of settled and dusted is now potentially up for grabs again, right? Which I think is maybe a good and interesting step forward of players' power really coming through, again, over the past couple of weeks in a way that has never happened before. Because before, the, the players would have just been grumpy and ended up playing at 9 o'clock in the morning in Portland. And now they're not. It's, it's fantastic. The thing that I keep coming back to is when I was in my call with uh, FIFPRO and the term co-decision-making came up as a result of players' being able to unionize and have a seat at the table. And I really think that that's an important concept for people to keep in mind is co-decision making where the players aren't just these pieces that get moved around by the league. It's where they have a say 
in their own lives. Yes. All right. So let's let's put a pin in some of the the news stuff because I do want to talk about the actual soccer that's being played. We're recording it on Wednesday ahead of all of the midweek action in the NWL which is only happening because games got not canceled but postponed from that first weekend after the story at the Athletic dropped on the 30th. So we're now we're now getting the the consequences, I guess, of like this Titan schedule, right, in the final month of of the regular season. But some big games on the line in the in the last couple of weeks here. But I think, you know, what's gonna be interesting is trying to record this today, knowing that there's a Portland OL rain game happening tonight and the huge potential impact this could have on the standings <laughs> and on the momentum of these two teams, because I want to start with this question to you of is OL rain going to snipe the NWSL shield right out from under Portland? That is interesting because Portland on 39 rain on 38 points. They both played the same number of games so far. Whew. That, I mean, <laughs> I really, I really don't know what else to say. They're, these are two teams that also have been playing pretty well, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I <laughs> there, so it's much just, is happening tonight as well because they rescheduled a bunch of games. So I, I'm just, I'm just thinking about this and looking at the table. Like I saw Gotham win one game and then immediately jump all the way up into like fifth or something <laughs> yeah. before things settled again after the night. Right. That's how yeah. tight things are because after that, like the difference between three and six is three points. So that's 32 and 29. So the, the every, every part of the table, ex- unless you're nine and 10 is absolutely yeah. wild. Yeah, it really feels like I I know even back in my own days of working for the NWSL, we had been pushing for like a NWSL decision day. And I feel like this is the first season where we would actually want that to happen. Like there feels like playoff seating is going to come down to the final day of the season. Again, like we've got this really interesting race between Portland and the rain for the first spot. Houston gets that big win over North Carolina, swings in the third place. And then, yes, you have Washington in fifth place on 30 points. Gotham currently sitting in that final playoff spot with 29. But then Chicago's in seven with 29 points, too. And Orlando's in eighth with 28. Like, this is the most absurd race to the postseason ever. And it uh, honestly drives me crazy that we're not talking about it more because there's so much other stuff happening that like this is the weirdest most intriguing end of who sell regular season i think we've ever had we're just every like every single game we talk about the parody of this league all the time right every single game has been absurd it feels like this year yeah i think the things i would be looking at is obviously portland rain and then i would be looking at kc maybe wanting to play spoiler because yeah what their 10th place they got 12 points a minus 20 goal differential like really sad stuff off you know first year team not gonna comment on on the the quality that you should expect out of a first year team but like maybe every once in a while sometimes that's what happens and houston and third dang that's where i would be looking for like some real chaos league fun 
But also it's just like, you know, tonight we also have North Carolina, Washington. That could have a huge implication, right? Washington could like scoot right back up the table again. But you've also got Chicago, Orlando, which could potentially, if Chicago picks up a win, then that's going to make life a lot harder for Orlando to stay in this playoff rate. Like, again, it's just every single game this month has such good, interesting, yeah, <laughs> like implications. And that I think is a thing that we should be celebrating in terms of league storylines in a way that we haven't really, you know, like I feel like things have kind of been written on the wall a lot more in some, in some, like usually it's North Carolina just being like, all right, we'll see y'all in the postseason, whoever gets here. And then it's like, you know, maybe you get some last day stuff around the final playoff spot, but instead it's just, you know, is, is Portland going to hang on for the shield? Also there's, there's playoff seating does make a huge difference here because the first two seeds, which I would assume are going to be Portland rain, but could potentially, you know, someone else could slide up there. Um, they, they get through, through the first round without having to play. So there is a reward there as well, but I, OL Reign to me is like the team to watch it, right now. It makes you want the league to really get it together because this should be the story. This like super juicy, exciting playoff race, which admittedly would be different if Washington had not had minus six goals and two <laughs> forfeits dumped on them um, as part of this season's like league of or this league's season of off field chaos. But you wish that that could be the story. Everybody, the players have said they're so tired of having to react to all this stuff off the field, and it's obviously important stuff that we have to talk about. But can you imagine a league free of this sort of stuff where we could just enjoy the juiciness of this table or suffer from it, depending on which team <laughs> you root for? How yeah. nice. I mean, I think nothing to me made that more clear than actually being at Audi Field last weekend for the Washington Spirits three nothing win over Louisville in terms of having that kind of emotional catharsis on both for the players and mm -hmm. the fans in the stands to just get that kind of big like hello we're we're actually playing soccer like look at this result we we are still very much in the playoff hunt we're a good team we can we can you know cruise through this win um, so that to me, you know, the spirit getting that three, nothing win mm -hmm. and looking, I want to, I want to take a second because Trinity Rodman's assist on that first goal should be in every, every single highlight reel of the 2021 season. She's absolutely fantastic. And so I don't know if any of you guys follow, uh, Ariel Dror, who does like data visualizations using data from American soccer analysis, but she puts up these really fascinating pass maps on her Twitter. And if you go look at that one, Trinity Rodman is clearly like this deep focus for the team. Like if you're sleeping on Rodman, I don't know where you've been all season long, but like the data, maybe even more so than the eye test spells out just how crucial she is to this team in terms of like the who links up with her and who she links up with and how she's able to spur the attack forward through, you know, either herself or her teammates, which is like Ashley Hatch, Ashley Sanchez. So maybe when we talk about MVP, Meg, at some point. <laughs> we, will, we will be talking about MVP. I do also want to point out that when um, our coworker Pablo and I pulled up to the stadium in his very ridiculous car, 
Um, the players were also arriving in the same parking lot, and it was Ashley Sanchez, Trinity Rodman, and, and someone else, um, and I'm blanking on who it was, were all in matching sweatsuits, watching me and Pablo roll in in this convertible, and just the, everyone looking at each other like, this is a weird moment for everyone <laughs> So that's the joy that we have been missing with, um, you know, now actually being able to be at games in person again of getting those strange, uh, you know, weird head nods at players in parking lots before everyone is actually supposed to be at the stadium. I hate that part when you arrive at the same time and I'm just like, don't perceive me. I know I'm here to cover you and we're going to talk later, but like you go to your locker room, I'll go to the press room. We're not, I'm not here. Yeah. Always a good time. All right. I want to also talk to you because it was extremely hilarious to me to be in the press box at Audi and trying to follow the Gotham Orlando game (laughs) at the same time. And obviously I'm focused on the game. I'm also walking around the stadium. So please walk me through that. Like if we want to talk about chaos vibes in the NWSL, that game to me really just felt like chaos, chaos, chaos. And we were watching the, the goals as they were coming in. And I also want to talk to you about that one Gotham goal that was like a perfect team goal. Oh. Let's start there. Let's start with that goal because I think I've watched that clip. And now also Gotham has posted like the on-field. Yeah, it looks know, even f- better. I, oh. And it's like, so that's not the first time they put together a goal like that. I think the game, not immediately before, but the one before that, they also had a really nice team goal. And I think this is the final piece that was missing under Freya, which was she had them playing this possession style of soccer where they were looking to make the passing triangles and really stay in possession, like calm possession, not like frenzied, just keep going possession. You know what I'm talking about? And Mm -hmm. then now they're like, it's possession with a purpose where it's not just so like one of the stats I see a lot is like Ally Long has such a high pass completion percentage, but you need to look at the direction of her passes as well. And a huge percentage of those passes were often like lateral or backwards. And it's like, of course, her per- completion is going to be high <laughs> in that case. She's playing it yeah. safe, it's like in the possession game, which, you know, I'm not bagging on it. I'm just saying it's context for what's going on. And now the context is it looks like they're doing a much better job. I note that some of this is happening now that purse is back. <laughs> yeah, that is definitely something important to note. Yep. Um, and, you know, they said after the game that their new head coach, Scott Parkinson, is really defining their roles for them. And I think we're seeing it play out on the field. It was a really gorgeous team goal. And it wasn't just like bread and potatoes. There was a lot of pizzazz to it as well. I think it was Imani, I want to say, from the position. Imani Dorsey, like, dummied this really nice pass. And then Carly got it and then set up, like, if you want, Anamanu, who then set up Midge Purse, who was completely wide open. Like, the defending was a little farcical. But again, like, the team movement and the quick transition helped open up the space. So yeah, just chef kiss goal. Yeah, I I do want to let's discuss Midge Purse's return because I know that we are going to talk about, you know, MVP candidates. And I I think Midge is going to get hurt by the fact that she has not been able to play this entire season. But if you want to talk about players immediately proving their actual value (laughs) to a team who Midge Purse has a really good case for Gotham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I think when we talk about MVP, we also need to take into account not just like who's at the top of the table, 
but like truly encompassing the term like most valuable player. Like I would take someone who got their team into the playoffs through their sheer like effort and work and I would rate them as much against someone for example on the Thorns who have been comfortably in the top who has been doing the the same work. Right. Maybe I'd right. wait well, even more. Let's let's talk about that because I do always really enjoy this kind of discussion of like how we vote for MVP awards and what we consider quote unquote most valuable because um, I know, you know, like on the MLS, I, I hesitate to even bring this up, but I feel like Alexi Lalas votes a lot about who is scoring the most goals. And we have an award for that and it's called the Golden Boot. So I really like goals. Yes, deeply important. But in terms of the value to a team, are goals the most important thing? Is it playmaking, right? Like I tend to rate playmaking at a higher premium than I rate goal scoring. And that's just my personal preference. I find that more valuable to a team from a team point of view than simple scoring. And sometimes like, to be fair, sometimes I think the leading goal scorer is actually the most valuable player on a team. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we haven't really seen a lot of players, like for a long time, the MVP was also just the golden boot winner. And we've only just now started to kind of break free of that in the NWSL. So I want to toss a candidate out there that I think is a dark horse candidate, but someone that I think should actually be considered for this. Also on Gotham, but it's Caprice Didasco. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> so for, just for context, I told Steph we were not allowed to discuss our MVP candidates before we recorded this because I really <laughs> wanted us to to come at this independently and not we have one shared brain cell. I wanted to see where we lined up. But Caprice Didasco, I think, has a very legitimate case for MVP this year. I'm so mad you didn't say we have to say it at the same time, three, two, one, because we would have been like Caprice Didasco. <laughs> I mean, if okay, let's look at the stats. So uh, at The Athletic, we're very fortunate to have access to Opta data at the moment. And so we can look a little bit deeper than just things like goals and assists and things like that. So if we're looking at players who have over 500 minutes on the field, Caprice Didasco, if we're going by like pass attempts, pass percentage, passing percentage in the attacking third, chances created, she's, you know, She's in the conversation up there. And once and if you weight it by the metric that they were, we're using where we're like getting her team into the playoffs as opposed to, you know, maybe a team like the Thorns or the Rain who are who are just up there in, in one and two where it's maybe more difficult task. No disrespect to Gotham, but a more difficult task for them to get in the playoffs. And you see someone who's so clearly trying to like drag them by the scruff of the neck <laughs> into that top six. I think that's a consideration. I, I definitely, and I, I also, one of the things that I really look at is assists as well. She's currently second. I mean, I also think that the leading candidate on the assist board, Sofia Huerta, might have a legit case for this award as well. Sofia Huerta has been absolutely balling out for mm -hmm. OL Reign for a while. Um, but I just also think that in terms of, you know, we talk a lot, we joke a lot about the Gotham FC force field <laughs> round goal, but Caprice Didasco, I think, to me, has been truly the standout defender, right? Um, but has also been an offensive presence for Gotham as well. Like, she plays both sides of the ball. Uh, her assists, the, the play up the wing has been really strong. Again, the passing is there. 
Um, and this is a player that I think has been kind of this quietly underrated player, no matter what team she's on, has been through some injury stuff. But to me, this has been, I think, a, a breakout season for Didasco. And I I think, you know, not that I want to like start a hashtag or a campaign, but <laughs> when I'm going to, to look at this, Didasco is a name that's going to be well up there for me. You know who she's comparable to by the numbers. So if we're going by chances, which Opta is calculating as key passes plus assists, she's comparable to Megan Klingenberg, mm-hmm. Jennifer Marjan, Mal Pugh, Christy Mewis, Jess Fishlock. These are all players you think of as like key playmakers for their teams and for teams that have much better playoff chances, particularly with the thorns in the rain. Uh, Angela Salem, you know, Crystal Dunn. She actually is, has created... By, by this one metric, has created more than, than actually Crystal Dunn for the Thorns. Obviously, Crystal Dunn has a different role than her, so we can't just use this one metric to be like, oh, clearly she's better than Crystal Dunn. Crystal Dunn has her own role, where by her own <laughs> metric, she far outstrips Caprice Didasco. <laughs> so I'm, I don't want people out there being like, you said Caprice Didasco is a better player than Crystal That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, <laughs> when you look at the role that she has to play for her team and the position from which she plays it, she's being comparable to someone like Mewis, Fishlock, Marjan, these are people who have been instrumental in creating for their teams, and then Didasco is having to come at that from the fullback position. Yes. Angela Salem, I think, is also a name that I think could quietly mm-hmm. be in the mix, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm a big defensive midfielder fan, and Angela Salem, I think, has still shown her value <laughs> to a team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in Portland's case, Portland has been generally the very dominant team across the NWSL. Um, so I think it has, you know, there are some, some real candidates. I think Mal Pugh should also probably be in that final mix for MVP. Um, but in terms of, you know, the leading goal scorers right at the moment, I think Sydney LaRue was kind of like a big potential candidate early on in the season, but Orlando, the form has kind of dipped in and out and that might affect her chances, but you know, Bethany Balser is also, I'm, I'm sure, going to be kind of in the mix in the mm-hmm. long run as we start thinking about all the voting that lies before us yeah. <laughs> at the end of the season. It's so hard voting on MVP if you're coming at this and you don't have like a deep data set. Not even that deep, just like beyond goals and assists and you just have the eye test. And I want to acknowledge like I haven't been perfect in voting. Like I'm not going in there and calculating by the percentages like okay, if I go strictly by the numbers, this player should be doing this and this and this. It would be great. I mean, this kind of speaks to the larger ecosystem again. Everything comes back to it. Like, data is so much more freely available in men's soccer than it is in women's soccer. So there's there's more analytics you can do to back up your eye test that we just don't have access to as widely in the women's game. So I'm not trying to, like, rag on people for just going by the eye test and their feelings and, like, goals and stuff. Like, you go by the metrics that you have. Yeah. All right. Is there any other any other name you want to float for MVP for we? I mean, some of the people in there who that we were comparable to Caprice. I think Klingenberg has been so big for Portland this year, and look at where they are in the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like very comparable. So I think that someone Trinity Rodman, who I mentioned, Trinity earlier. Rodman. I think yep, Trinity Rodman is definitely I think one of the leading candidates from the spirit. And, you know, maybe she's not in the 
the mix this year, like in the final shortlist or something. But in terms of thinking that she's going to be on this list next year, the year at like Trinity Radman is a name that I think we're going to get very, very used to. Yes. In these sorts of conversations. At the very least, she should be someone entering the conversation being like, oh, clearly one for the future. I mean, I would think Trinity Rodman is, Rodman is almost certainly a lock for rookie of the year. Mm-hmm. I think so. Like from game one, we were like rookie of the year. That's just how <laughs> good she's looked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I will be kind of interested to see how they define the rookie of the year mm. award, considering that we do kind of now, I, like, I still can't even make sense of, like, what actually counts as an official NWSL appearance slash goals, you know, like, all of this kind of, well, some things are Challenge Cup and some things are Fall Series, and and so I will be fascinated to see how this maybe plays out in some of the, the postseason stuff, but, I mean, I would assume Trinity Rodman is going to be a top, top contender for Rookie of the Year. Can you try to imagine the spirit without her this season? No. Sad. But I Sad also times. think every Spirit fan would be screaming if <laughs> <laughs> just like in agony yeah. um, thinking about that possibility. So. All right. Let's let's shift over to the news. I mean, I think there's obviously been a lot um, in the news roundup of this episode. I just basically pointed people over to the running live blog that we basically had for a week, because again, it it is kind of this running history of the NWSL and everything that has happened. But I want to start us with a question because, you know, again, we talked about the championship being moved at the start of the episode. Um, You know, thinking about, okay, we've got this executive committee that is now running front office operations, and we've now started to see decisions happening. We still don't really, again, I've had a lot of people ask me about like, well, how does the league actually work? (laughs) And me trying to come up with some sort of answer for that has still proven to be a little bit difficult. But I want to toss out a question of like, how much does the next commissioner hire really matter and I guess almost first we have to start with is is the role of commissioner still even going to be the same the next time we get a commissioner that was what I was going to tell you which is it matters within how we or how the board or the league decides to define commissioner because I think a lot of what Lisa Bear did was actually not really commissionerish stuff when you look at the business side. So a commissioner is someone, it can be whatever we want it to be. But for the purposes of this discussion, a commissioner, we're talking about someone who's trying to run the league day to day, who's responsible for like ironing out the, the calendar and, and getting the the championship all set up and, and stuff like that. So, you know, the role that she had in, like, organizing the Challenge Cup, but, like, writ large over the course of the season. And it really felt like she focused a lot more on the business side of things, where she was working the sponsorships and the deals and things like that. And I'm not saying you can't fold that into the role of commissioner, particularly in a league where people are wearing a lot of hats in uh, a lot of offices and personnel are maybe at a premium. But I think if we're talking about someone to handle the day-to-day running of the league and like ironing all this stuff out, a commissioner does matter just because who else is going to do it? 
Yael? Well, Merit? <laughs> I mean, I guess, so this is part of it too, is that, you know, when I'm thinking about this question of, okay, you know, they're starting this global search, right? When I think about a commissioner, I, I personally don't think a commissioner is doing the day-to-day -day running of the league. The commissioner is kind of this figurehead who is overseeing a number of departments. So to me, ultimately, the bigger challenge is not just hiring the right person for this role who can be this kind of forward-facing presence, right, who, who does have final say over the calendar or the schedule or any other, you know, like where the championship is, any anything like that, right? But also, are you setting up, are you empowering that person, first of all, to like make decisions with the board? Like how does that relationship work? Because we have this board of governors that has one representative from every team where it feels like most of the decision power actually lies from a league point of view, right? Like to approve expansion draft rules, the board of governor has to approve them. They're not necessarily a thing that the commissioner just says, here we go, right? That was kind of part of the problem that we saw with how the expansion draft rules played out this season even, is that a commissioner was making unilateral decisions, interpreting the rules that then had to go back to the teams. But are you actually putting people in an ops department to to build the schedule, to do all of the actual work that an ops department does? Do you have a business department? Do you have a player relations department? Do you have like an actual HR department? And what, what has really been the case for the NWSL for so long is that you maybe have one person <laughs> for all of these roles or all of these functions of the business. So a commissioner has been tasked with almost all of these other responsibilities on top of it. And that I think is kind of the bigger question of, are we finally going to see this investment in the NWSL front office to like build out the support structure of the league? Or even fundamentally, the question is, do you strip some of that power from an NWSL front office and make it a more team-based approach? There are a couple of paths out, out of this. And, and, from my own history with the league, I can speak to the fact that the teams have generally wanted to run things themselves. Like every market keeps saying, well, we're different, right? What works in Portland doesn't work for Gotham or, you know, any number of things, right? So there has always been this tension of power between the clubs and the front office. And it has changed over the past decade. But now there is a chance to really consider what that relationship is going to be. Yeah, when I say day-to-day -day running the league, I agree with you. Not yeah. someone who's like literally <laughs> sitting there with an Excel spreadsheet. Like, more like a CEO. Yeah. Um, and in a business, a CEO is also answerable to like the shareholders, the stakeholders in this case, the owners of the teams. But like you said, that power balance, because up until now, it, a lot of times it has felt like the commissioner is just there to take all of the <laughs> focus from the like – just take all the ire from the fans for decisions that they didn't necessarily make. Like they're just, I don't want to say puppet, right? But like in that vein, somebody who's there to just do what the board wants mm -hmm. um, as opposed to someone, as you said, empower. I really hate that word when people use it because they usually don't mean it the way that it's supposed to be, which is empower, giving someone power. Right. So is, is, I mean, that's the fundamental question, though, is does an NWSL commissioner actually have any sort of meaningful power? And I think part of why Lisa Baird's resignation was accepted is because 
yeah, like to some extent, yeah, she was kind of a fall for the league, right? There was cover there, but I also think that there was this legitimate thing of the players reached out to her directly right. for a new investigation and the dismissal that they got was just not Yeah, that was within her own hands to do. Right. That was that was a power that she she could have had. Yeah. Right? Like that that is that should have been a, a all she had to do was pick up the phone, right? And as soon as that didn't happen, it was just kind of this you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. But at the same time of let's say she did pick up the phone and talk to them, what what would that process have looked like? Right. Because she gets I, on the I, phone with Merritt Paulson and he's like, yeah, we had an investigation. It was fine. And then who does she go to after that? Right. And that that I think to me is kind of the bigger question that we're looking at now is honestly, how does power work in this league? I'm certain. And that, yeah. I'm certain there are factions within the ownership group because <laughs> – as you said, what works in one market doesn't work in others, but some markets probably have similarities. So some owners are probably more prone to agreeing with each other than other owners. I think there, you know, so there's probably divides, I don't want to say 50-50, I couldn't even guess. But I think if you think about the different markets, their needs, when they entered the league, you know, whether they're affiliated with MLS teams or not, all these kinds of similarities, you may be able to kind of vaguely guess at who's going to vote which way on what topics, sort of. Yeah. But again... I mean, it's it's messy. Yeah. It is messy. And I think the the other part of this, too, is just, you know, yes, there are, I would say, factions and all that kind of stuff. But then I, I guess, you know, we're, we're thinking about... There's still this collective bargaining agreement that needs to happen, right? Which is another potentially, like, change the game moment for this league... And if we want to talk about something that Lisa Baird had assumed into her role, it was CBA negotiations. So now also owners are having to step into this negotiation process that they had not been attending before. And so how is that going to play out? And this is a, a spot of mine that I really have to remember is that we need to start thinking of the board as a group that includes Angel City and San Diego. Yes, yes. Um, who I think are probably going to shift the vibe a little bit, just based on the way Angel City has been talking about the CBA negotiations and, you know, being sympathetic to player rights. And they were one of the first teams to make a statement like they had the least skin in the game. Obviously, they don't have a team out there yet. So maybe it costs them less to be able to put out something like this. But I think when you see that, you feel the vibe entering and you're like, oh, that might shift whatever these like lines that we just discussed that we can't quite we don't really know but like they might shift the way voting Well I even think it's it's the teams that have been there since the beginning and still have this like scarcity <laughs> mindset right like this this thing of like oh it could all fall apart around us versus the teams that are coming in right now and and feeling like this is stable like we're going to expand again right like so you're even coming from a very different mindset of like we don't have this like built-in trauma that even like the teams themselves have to some extent, like a Chicago Red Stars, right? Who has been through multiple leagues or Gotham now, right? Like there there are teams that have been around that have survived multiple leagues and I think do still operate from this spot of like, 
anything could go at any moment, right. right? Like we have to do it. We have to do it in a stable manner. We have to do it safely. Like we have to prioritize the the well being of the league. And then you have someone like an Angel City or San Diego come in and be like, "We have money. What are we doing? Right? Why do we have Why do we have a discovery list where <laughs> players don't even know that they're on it? Right? Like it's just two completely different worlds, almost. I think. And so you like we don't get to see it, but. That that combination of mindsets in a board environment has to be weird as hell. Yeah, it's like when your parents are really anxious about you and they're like, I made all these mistakes when I was your age. And you're like, yeah, so that I wouldn't make them, you know, <laughs> like, mom, dad, yeah. you don't have to project all your anxieties onto me. Yeah. All right. <laughs> We'll we'll sit on. I mean, I'm sure that there will be more news it, every every day. There is more news, but I do want to move on to the U.S. Women's National Team roster drop, which also happened on Wednesday. Since we are both um, waiting to travel for these two games in October, you're heading to both Kansas City and Minnesota. I will join you in Minnesota. Um, what stands out to you from this this roster drop? Uh, first thing I saw was Emily Fox call up and she's a name that we've been bringing up recently as someone who needs to enter the fullback pool and surely will and surely has, um, as, as an area that needs attention. And then the second thing, Crystal Dunn, um, declining to opting to sit this one out. And I think that's important on a number of levels. First, the surface level, Emily Fox is in. So I think that surely means she will get some meaningful time. Crystal Dunn's out. That's your... That you're starting left back. Um, yep. Uh, and then the second part of that, on the more meta level, Crystal Dunn feeling like she can opt out. Yeah. And that she's in a place to do so. Well, and we saw that with, with Kristen Press in the last set of friendlies, too. She has opted out to set these two out again. Um, yeah, I think that that is, again, like we've seen the shift in player, in, in player power. Mm -hmm. And I think Kristen Press led the way. Um, with the last couple of months of, of feeling strong enough in a, in a place where she is strong enough to opt out and not have, it's not even that it'd be retaliation, but just that it could potentially impact, right? Mm -hmm. And so to be secure enough in your spot and have that probably assurance from U.S. soccer that no, this is not going to impact you in any way, I think is a really good and promising step forward. Yeah, love that journey for them. Yeah. Um, we're still waiting for Alyssa Nair, Sam Mewis, Julia Ertz to make a full return. Megan Rapino is back. Um, but obviously these two games, again, we're, we're kind of in the extended Carly Lloyd retirement tour and Minnesota will be her final match. Um, but again, you know, I think the real focus over the, the other two games and we spoke about this is that despite the fact that these rosters are kind of dictated by the Olympic roster. We already got to see a lot of exciting stuff coming out of those other two matches. You know, Andy Sullivan getting significant minutes, Sophia Smith stepping in, Katarina Macario um, stepping up. Like, as much as this has been kind of limited by artificial contract stuff, the first two games were not exactly a wash. Like, yes, obviously not close games, but we're still getting some progress, maybe even more than we would have expected previously from these rosters. Yeah. Emily Fox getting called up. Yeah, like, I like it. I like it. Yeah. 
The, the one place I wish there was a little more wiggle room is in the goalkeeper area yeah. because it's just Jane Campbell and Adriana French here. Um, and, you know, even with Alyssa Nair out, they're not adding somebody in like a Bledsoe or a Harachich or a, even a Bixby or something like that. Mm-hmm. So on the other hand, I'm sure those teams are probably very much like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think um, there there is kind of this double-edged sort of like not wanting to lose players to the national team at this point, right? Again, October is going to be a really key month for a lot of teams. And so to have players come in and out with this camp, I think is probably not super ideal, especially with how many games are being crammed into this month with the international break. And also again, NWCL kind of pushing games all on top of each other with, with the scheduling issues. But yeah, I, I, I think it will be, you know, like we have seen that Vlaco is not exactly just trotting out a standard starting 11 in these friendlies. Something tickled my brain real quick, and I was like, Harachich, why not? And it's because yeah. she's already been Bosnia. by Bosnia and Herzegovina. And I was like, I don't want someone coming back and being like, how dare you not know that about Didi Harachich? <laughs> You're not a real Gotham fan. And I just want you to know, I am. I'm just really tired. <laughs> there, Yeah. The, the sleep deprivation. There was one night in, I think it was last Friday, maybe, where the two of us spoke in the morning. And I was like, I slept 10 hours. And you were like, I did too. And we had both gone to bed at like 8 o'clock at night. Well, I've also been weirdly sick the past like mm. two weeks. And it's not COVID. I've tested negative multiple times. So it's just some kind of crud that we're all getting like normal flu, which has me so angry. I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> I do all this to not get COVID and yet I get normal flu. I don't know if it's normal flu, but you know what I mean? Like, how yeah. dare I get sick? Anyway, get your flu shots. Get your flu shots. They're they're free and fun. Yeah, get your flu <laughs> get shots. Get a Band-Aid. I've, no I've sticker, kept, just a Band-Aid. I kept wearing my mask. I've been washing my hands. I haven't been gathering and huge things indoors. I'm only hanging out with vaccinated people. I still got sick. How dare you? Yeah. All right. Well, I will send good vibes for your Kansas City trip that you stay healthy and full of barbecue. And if I'm still nauseous by the time I get to barbecue land, that's truly going to be a crime against me personally. I will say that is one of the best parts of traveling to Kansas City for work is just nonstop barbecue. You're going to ignite like a barbecue war with that little offhand. I mean, I eat barbecue in basically any city that has good barbecue. So... It's up North Carolina. Sorry, North Carolina. <laughs> I will. I will actually start that fight because wow. I don't. I don't like vinegar-based sauce. Just so I'm an, sorry. An offhand last minute of a podcast, and that's going to be all anyone's can talk about. Ugh. Yeah, I feel like I've 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 said this publicly before though, so I don't know if this is new information to people. But I uh, like it's just a me thing. Like mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say that North North Carolina barbecue is bad. I'm just saying I don't like it which I think is an important distinction. Right. If you're going to at Meg, please do not tag me in this conversation. <laughs> I would like to be left out of this narrative. Thank you. I will say North Carolina is always my my first stop is Waffle House, so they have that going for them. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Well, then on that note, uh, once I start uh, Barbecue War, I still think now with Kansas City back in the league that we do need um, a barbecue cup between Houston, Kansas City. North Carolina. I don't know why that has not happened yet. I've been waiting for that for years before Kansas City even moved in the first place. So just saying there's an opportunity right now for this to happen. Maybe you should be commissioner. 
<laughs> I do not. How much would they have to pay you to take that job for one year? For one year? Yeah. Ooh. Um, that's a good question. I don't. I don't know. I would like it would have to probably be a pretty hefty price because I don't think that job is very fun at all. No. I'm just thinking about like my phone is already a very busy space. Um, I can only imagine what it would be like as commissioner. One million dollars. Yeah, pretty much. After taxes. <laughs> just like a guaranteed year off. Exactly. After two. Yeah. No, I mm, 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 mm. No, thank you. All right, Steph. Thank you for your time. Uh, have a good time in Kansas City, and I will see you in Minnesota. Thank you, as always, to Steph. Make sure you follow her at Thrace on Twitter as she's heading to Kansas City for the first of the U.S. Women's National Team matches, and we'll both be in Minnesota soon enough. I'm going to have to leave some room in my bag for a trip to Talisman & Co. I am, I'm already nervous about my wallet, I'll be honest. All right, one more thing. Marcus Thompson has a new book out. You may have heard him on the show before talking about his excellent story from this year on The Athletic on the movement to elevate black women in American soccer. I've been very behind, I will admit, in making it to a bookstore to pick up my own copy, but I cannot wait to read it. It's called Dynasties, the 10 Goat Teams That Changed the NBA Forever. Support your local indie and grab a copy for yourself or get that holiday shopping going now because we already know it's going to be an adventure this year. All right, for all things full-time, you can visit fulltimepod.com. There are links for all of the major podcast platforms in one spot, plus more information about the show. Again, you can subscribe to The Athletic and support all of our women's soccer coverage right now at theathletic.com slash full-time. My name is Meg Linehan. You have been listening to Full-Time with Meg Linehan. You can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at It's Meg Linehan and my work at The Athletic. Full-Time does not exist without the work and support of senior podcast producer Michael Zimmerman. From The Athletic, I'm Meg, and thank you for listening. Thank you.